come to you as we have on a few previous occasions when world events demanded a response. In this case, I hardly need say it is the Hamas attack on Israeli civilians. I'm going to begin this recording reading a statement that I actually wrote out. I almost never write things out for this podcast, but in this case, uh, given the gravity of what's going on and my desire for precision in what I say, I thought it was better to do it this way. So I'm going to begin um, by reading what I wrote, uh, then Dad is going to take the floor a while, and we have a few other things to say beyond that. But for starters, you're just going to hear from me for a bit. So here goes. I always feel a great deal of trepidation about doing these episodes on world events because I know how hard it is to speak wisely into a situation beyond one's expertise. And Israel-Palestine is one of the most fraught and complex places on earth with a corkscrew history and plenty of tinder ready to ignite at any moment. It's my conviction that such situations require deep knowledge, careful analysis, and nuanced response. All the more so now in our incredibly polluted information environment, when it is harder than ever to know what's really going on, much less who is really running the show. But now I'm going to violate all that, at least apparently. Um, And first of all, because of the remarkable timing. Our most recent regular episode on Paul Tillich's prophetic radio addresses to his fellow Germans during World War II, calling out their complacency, cooperation, and indulgence of anti-Semitism, was actually recorded some time ago already. Uh, We scheduled it in advance so we could take a bit of uh, time off. And we, of course, had no way of knowing that in real time it would drop only days after this Hamas attack. And we can only regret that it is more relevant than we possibly could have imagined when we recorded it. But also, I feel the compulsion to speak about this because it looks to me like nuance, caution, and a historical perspective, which are intellectual disciplines that I continue to hold in the highest regard, are being manipulated into tools of thought control that prevent certain people from just naming what they see. To quote Martin Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. This is what it actually is. A barbaric assault on civilians and exaltation in that assault. It has no excuse or justification. It's just vile, disgusting, bloody crime. This attack and the sickening joy that far too many people worldwide are taking in it has clarified for me something that I have been creeping toward for a long time. I want to place myself historically here. My childhood passed during peak American prosperity, and my young adulthood during the victory of the free West over totalitarian communism. I realize now that my ideas about the world were formed in possibly one of the least representative periods of world history. I grew up thinking that people, on the whole, prefer peace and prosperity to the alternatives. I have since read a lot of history and tried to make myself understand that this is not necessarily the case. But until the last few years, I wasn't able to feel that in my bones. But I do now. So let me draw another motif from Luther, one of his more controversial ones. This is from The Bondage of the Will. For if God is in us, Satan is absent, and only a good will is present. If God is absent... Satan is present, and only an evil will is in us. 
Neither God nor Satan permits sheer, unqualified willing in us. But we, having lost our liberty, are forced to serve sin. That is, we will sin and evil, speak sin and evil, do sin and evil. End quote. So here is my paraphrase of Luther for today. Either we worship God or we worship death. Everything that lies between the two, tribe, nation, family, progress, civilization, culture, ideals, work, religion, we will either offer up to God's glory or we will twist into an instrument of murder. It looks to me like there is a grace period for those who benefit from the worship of their parents and ancestors. Without knowing to whom they offer the glory, they do so anyway. But at some point, this reserve runs dry, and then the naked choice comes back again, God or death. It doesn't usually show itself that way. It usually cloaks itself in one of the middle terms, which masquerades as the highest good. But unless God is and remains the highest good, then that middle term simply becomes another way of killing. This is the only way I can make sense of how our culture and history have turned so violently in the second half of my adulthood so far, but especially over the last five years. I can't fathom how race war became fashionable again, or how the global suppression of civil liberties and free speech got marketed and bought as compassion and responsibility. There is much to be alarmed about, but at least there is clarity now. Worship God or worship death. Any space in between is an illusion. Please understand, this does not mean that each human being is simply either good or bad. No one's story is finished until death anyway. What it does mean is that none of us stands neutrally. Each of us is pointed either toward God or toward death. Personally, I have come to doubt very much the narratives of church decline, which well-meaning church people internalize chiefly as our failure to be or do fill-in-the-blank, according to where you're standing. What we have is much more serious than a church problem. We have a humanity problem. On this podcast, Dad and I have tried theologically to illuminate some aspects of our common humanity problem. If there is any small comfort for me in this moment, it's that I have begun to see how people who have ignored or discounted faith in God because they have unknowingly been living in their grace period— a weighty phrase, if you think about it. These people suddenly wake up. The grace period expires. They realize they are headed toward the worship of death, and the shock of that reorients them toward worship of God. It can happen really fast, and it can happen to anyone. That is good news. Here's the bad news. Worshipers of God can be fooled and lured into worshiping death without recognizing the change within. All evils perpetrated in God's name are exactly that. Wow, Sarah, that's quite a quite a statement. Um, nothing like an autobiographical exercise in Augustinian confessions of the soul. <laughs> if only I reached that level. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's very powerful. I just have a couple of comments about what you said. During the grace period you're talking about, I was teaching undergraduates at Roanoke College, and I always taught them about Marxism-Leninism. And some of them were bored with it, like I was dealing with ancient history. Um, but I was warning students all during that period um, that, uh, especially after 9-11, then after the financial crisis of 2009, 
up to my end of my career at teaching college during the pandemic, I warned them that just a little bit of pressure uh, on the post-Cold War global system and Marxism-Leninism would become come roaring back with red banners flowing. And I think we're witnessing that, as I'll point out in a few minutes, with respect to the whole theory of colonialism and the demand for decolonialization and so forth that infects discourse about the Israel-Hamas conflict. That's one point. A second point is that um, I'm so pleased that you've picked up on Luther's apocalyptic theology progressively more and more, and that this overarching battle between good and evil uh, really ought to be framing our theology, the conflict between the Regnum Diaboli and the Regnum Christi, within which both church and state are instruments that can be captured by God or the devil. Um, and then finally, I would just want a little bit more clarity on your alternative, we worship God or we worship death, uh, particularly because of the way you concluded that worshipers of God can be fooled and lured into worshiping death. I think it's very important to specify we worship God as creator, as Lord and giver of life, whose will is life, and therefore as the one who is alone uh, capable wisely or goodly of taking life or calling us from life, so that murder is a usurpation of the Lord of life's um, sovereignty over us. I would like more clarity about that. And then worshiping death, you paraphrase the rule of the devil as worshiping death. I think that could be unpacked a little bit more. Those are just my two several brief comments um, on what you've said. Well, I will keep working on those two points. It's it's a hard thing to come to say and recognize. So uh, it it needs more development. And uh, and I I just want to reiterate how absolutely I mean that we do not class people into good or evil. In fact, that is very much part of the worship of death is getting away with classifying certain people as evil so that you can exterminate them. Yes, and that's a perfect segue to the remarks I want to make about Hamas's attack on Israel. Okay, then why don't you go now? I think that um, I, w I want to read an excerpt from my 2013 book before Auschwitz about the European Jew Maurice Samuel who in 1939-40 went on a lecture tour throughout the United States and it was as a result of that published a book called in English called The Great Hatred. And it's an analysis of the dynamics of obsessive Jew hatred. And this is what Samuel tells us after he's been talking with American church people. Liberal churchmen he says, have trivialized anti-Semitism by reducing it into a vulgar political tactic. They've made no attempt to understand its deadly attractiveness and therefore did not even begin to look for an explanation beyond their own progressive belief in national self-determination. The deadly appeal of Nazi anti-Semitism was reduced, in other words, to garden-variety ethnocentric prejudice and rivalry. It was not taken seriously in its obsessive ferocity. 
Why, Samuel demanded, is anti-Semitism to be found in all countries, the haves and the have-nots, the sated and the unsated, those who were victorious in the First World War, those who were vanquished, those who remain neutral, and even those who were born or reborn of it? Why is anti-Semitic propaganda unique in character, differing altogether from the familiar literature of national hatreds and intolerances, and using demonology in the place of the ordinary rational lie? What is the religious secret of this demonology at work in the virulent anti-Semitism? So I think that sets the tone for, Sarah, these uh, observations that I want to make in the spirit of Christian realism, building upon your apocalyptic theology of the God of life versus the Lords of death, um, and how that interprets the Israel Hamas uh, war that we're presently experiencing. Like you, I hesitate because this is a fast unfolding situation, and we don't can't be uh, we can't be absolutely certain of the information that we're getting. But as it seems to me today, these are the remarks I want to make. First, good faith criticism of Israeli policy is not anti-Semitic. In fact, it is at the heart of Israeli democracy. But radical criticism of Israel's right to exist is not in good faith. It is a manifestation of Jew hatred. Second point, the Hamas attack takes the mask off. In the perspective of the Christian just war tradition, Hamas is not a resistance movement, but a fanatical terrorist organization. The mask is also removed from fellow travelers in the academic far left and others around the world for noxious defenses of Hamas's attack. A terrorist organization deliberately attacks defenseless civilian populations to traumatize and demoralize. A resistance movement makes a moral protest morally, as in Gandhi or King, Haval or Solzhenitsyn. Let's try to understand these points by putting Israeli rage into perspective. Proportionately speaking, the Hamas attack would amount to 40,000 American deaths in one fell swoop. If Americans can recall their own rage after 9-11, they should also recall how this rage undermined reason, especially with Bush's war of choice in Iraq. Rationally speaking, Israel must own up to the reality, just as it cannot live with genocidal Hamas as a neighbor, Granted, it must live side by side in peace and justice with the Palestinian peoples. We need to put this all in a bigger per, uh, perspective. The poison of Jew hatred manifestly infects Iran, motivates its leadership, and serves as the scapegoat to keep the regime in power. The poison, along with terrorist instruments to implement it, is spread through Syria Lebanon and with Hezbollah, down to Gaza with Hamas. Consequently, Israel faces right now an existential threat from Jew-hating fanaticism, and thus it is now in a state of war. That's the reality. No one is serious speaking to this conflict unless they acknowledge 
this reality. Therefore, I say the Biden administration is to be commended for counseling Israel to military restraint, observing the rules of war, particularly in regard to the civilian population. In this connection, Israel has just denied that it is responsible for the highly publicized bombing of a flatbed trailer carrying refugees south in Gaza, saying data indicates an explosion from beneath the trailer. In other words, that it was a Hamas false flag operation. Hamas has brought this hellish urban warfare upon itself by its attack on the Jewish innocents in the name of its determination to destroy the state of Israel from the river to the sea, now by its cynical use of the Palestinian innocents as a shield for its violence. Now I want to turn more broadly to the ideological context. The rhetorically powerful accusation that's become popular in certain circles in the American churches that Israel is an apartheid state, illicitly analogizes from the experience of South Africa while silently depending upon Lenin's theory of imperialism. In the process, it ignores significant history in order to delegitimate the state of Israel. It legitimates Hamas's terrorism as revolutionary anti-colonial violence, and thus it is ideologically complicit in Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel. You have to buy in, into Lenin's highly questionable theory of colonialism as capitalism continued by other means to refer to the founding of Israel as a land steal. All these early Zionists were socialists, for heaven's sakes. Historically, Palestine for centuries was ruled not by Arabs, but by the Turkish Ottomans. It never had a homogenous ethnic population. And we could go more into the weeds on the history. That's enough to indicate the problem. Now, none of this is to deny the injustice of the chaotic displacement of Palestinian Arabs in the aftermath of the 1948 war. But mind you, this happened after all the surrounding Arab neighbors tried to wipe the Jews off the map of Palestine, and again 50 years later in the Yom Kippur War. Complicated history indeed. Now, a more broad problem here is revanchism, which is the true sense of this ideological mantra of decolonization. When political actors practice revanchism, they are trying to get revenge by taking back territory they perceive to have lost in a war or a social movement. The policy inevitably always involves new military conflict because it's motivated by retribution as much as political or economic aims. The French root of the word revanchism is, you can pronounce it for me, Sarah, revanche, eh? or revenge. And the word was first used politically after the Franco-German War, when French nationalists were determined to reclaim territory that had been lost to Germany. Just war doctrine rejects revenge and limits just defense to halting and disarming enemy aggression. 
Now, final points. The plight of the Palestinian people today is that they are caught between the security needs of Israel and the Islamic fanaticism of Hamas and Hezbollah. We have all heard the shouts of Allahu Akbar as the Hamas murderers exulted in their videotaped barbarism. If Hamas's war is religious, Israel must limit its war to secular purposes. This excludes extreme Jewish Zionism and dispensationalist Christian Zionism. In the widest perspective, we are witnessing the rise of a new axis. Iran and its proxies, Russia, North Korea, and tipping the balance would be China. Like it or not, we are entering into a new Cold War, which at any point, like the old one, can become hot. Tyrannies govern these nation-state actors in the new axis and align their interests against the freer world. The same brutal manner of warfare on a small scale in Hamas's attack on Israel occurred on a large scale in Russia's attack on Ukraine. The greatest tragedy is that the prospective Saudi-Israeli peace was predicated upon a just solution for the Palestinians, but Iran, acting through Hamas, has torpedoed that for the time being. Israel sees no choice but militarily to defeat Hamas once and for all. Then, no choice also, I would add, but to the two-state solution, finding a way to live in justice and peace with the neighboring Palestinians. Finally, I would say, American, America first neo-isolationism is not the answer. The cost of the new Cold War, however, will be a heavy one. Well, thank you for that, Dad. You know, I know you bring a lot more historical perspective as well as, you know, long, long decades of following these political developments um, domestically and globally very carefully. Um, I, I don't have <laughs> I don't have a, a place from which to offer either agreement or, or critique, but I think your your appeal to uh, realism um, and soundness of judgments and restraint as much as possible while stopping the act the the bloody acts of people who desire only revenge and o- only terror is very well taken. I guess my only question, um, a modest one, is to whom can this be speaking? I mean, I I, I don't think uh, listeners of Queen of the Sciences have any any ear to anybody who has the power to make these decisions. How how would you have these political observations received by our listeners? Well, our re- listeners are interested in a theological interpretation of of our experience, and of course, this Hamas attack on Israel and Israel's declaration of war on Hamas in turn is a major event in our history, which has these broader ramifications that I discussed and I won't repeat here. Um, And so um, you can have all sorts of personal feelings, some of sympathy for the Palestinians, some of sympathy for the Israelis. If you're a true human being, sympathy for both um, in this tragedy brought on by Hamas's fanatical and genocidal uh, platforms, um, 
and, and, and policies and actions. Uh, but sober judgment and discernment is required of us right now. And um, um, it's been a rare day in May that I've had something very complimentary to say about the Biden administration, but I'm happy <laughs> that I was able to do that today. All right. I just want to say one thing that I appreciate about what you said here. You used the phrase Jew hatred several times. And I think in the wake of this, to me, anti-Semitism is no longer the right word. It's kind of distancing and muting. And I mean, we don't call Jews Semites. And there are people besides Jews who are Semites, if you're going to dwell on that kind of racial thinking. I think Jew hatred is just the plain word here. And from that quote you you gave early on um from before Auschwitz, the the illogical and deep mind virus nature of Jew hatred has to be taken seriously, that it is a racism, but it is not like other kinds of racism. And I think the proof of that is how it dwells on the extreme right and on the extreme left um, equally, and uh, perhaps excused for different reasons, but um, not justified in either case. Um, it's a very shoddy and cheap and ancient mind virus uh, and scapegoating mechanism, but there's something about it that is beyond any kind of um, rational analysis, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. Yes, it's a demonology. Yeah. All right, well, to to continue on with the uh, giving some theological framing, I, I, um, I think here we need to name a bad theological framing of this um, as, again, listeners will know that uh, uh, Dad and I attempt to ignore to death and freeze out statements coming from denominational headquarters, all of them, um, well, mainly because we just don't want to give them any any airtime at all. <laughs> uh, they strike, me at least, I would say, as uh, bland expressions of, of uh, a chaplaincy to whatever power in our polarized culture that they happen to suck up to at the moment. Um, but uh, I, I have to speak out about the statement that came from the headquarters of the ELCA from presiding Bishop Elizabeth Eaton. Um, so I'll, I'll include this in the show notes for people who want to take a look. I do give her credit for trying very hard to name the evil for what it is. So she speaks of, quote, the egregious acts of Hamas, end quote, and also, quote, agonizing wait for word about the fate of loved ones killed or taken hostage by Hamas, end quote. So far, so good. But very quickly in this brief statement, there is a subtle turn. Let me read from it again. Quote, among us are Palestinian Lutherans who are fearful for their families, end quote. Uh, Eaton adds a little bit later, quote, in our communities, we have Jewish and Muslim neighbors, end quote. And then in the two paragraphs to follow, she twice names the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Jordan and the Holy Land, that we are bound together as church through, quote, our longstanding accompaniment, end quote. Now, here's the first thing that I need to say to this. Yes, there are Palestinian Lutherans and Palestinian Christians who are not Lutherans, who we are all bound together with as church. But there are also Jewish Lutherans and there are Jewish Christians. In this statement, Eaton is either entirely unaware of them or willfully refusing to name their existence. Dad, you and I both know a significant number of Jewish Christians, including Jewish Lutherans. 
So I think we need here to name their existence because I don't think it's safe or wise for them to do so right now. So to our Jewish Christian friends out there, we know you're here. We are glad you're here and we will speak up for you. And I say to um, anyone in power in the ELCA or any other American church body, to refuse to name or identify Jewish Christians in this situation is a breaking of faith of which Lutherans of all people ought to be deeply, deeply ashamed. Have we not learned the lessons of our own history? There, there's also a kind of attempt to make moral equivalencies in Eaton's rhetoric. I, I, I identify two moral equivalences. The first is, she says, Jews and Muslims are equally horrified and afraid. So yes, there is fear and horror on both sides and with good re reason. And yes, it is certainly going to get worse for Palestinians and Muslims in Gaza with Israel's military response to what Hamas has done. But there is not a moral equivalence between the two parties here in the wake of Hamas's attack. You don't need to ignore the suffering of Palestinians and Muslims in order to say what Hamas did is unconscionably awful. It is not an equivalence to other things that have happened or are happening right now. And to me, that leads to really the appalling conclusion of this statement. Eaton says at the end, quote, the power exerted against all Palestinian people through the occupation, the expansion of settlements, and the escalating violence must be called out as a root cause of what we are witnessing, end quote. Dad, allow me to translate the statement for you. This is all Israel's fault, and they brought it on themselves. It's blaming the victim. I would uh, paraphrase it into another domain as, but she was wearing a miniskirt and a low-cut blouse. She was asking for it. Excuse me, we do not do this. <laughs> we can, again, as Dad has already said, legitimately criticize plenty of what the state of Israel has done, but that does not give us permission to tacitly say, well, they had it coming. Moreover, it makes a moral equivalence between Palestinians, who do have legitimate grievances to some degree, not the infinite degree that Hamas claims. It makes a moral equivalence between these Palestinians and Hamas itself, which is simply organized crime and a terrorist outfit whose stated public goal is the extermination of all Jews worldwide, not the just sharing of land in the Holy Land. Let us say clearly, Palestinians also deserve better than Hamas. That's for sure. That's, that's for, and maybe that would be, if we can look prognosticate, hopefully, um, I hope not with rose-colored glasses, but hopefully, if Hamas is destroyed uh, militarily and politically by Israel's response, then Gaza can be returned to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and we can actually move forward towards a two-state solution. That would be a grace that we little deserve, but one that we should fervently hope and pray for. Because there is no alternative now, and everyone must own up to this, Israel has no alternative but to destroy Hamas for all the reasons we've given. Yeah. And not denying the terrible collateral damage that always happens in cases like this. War is hell. And this is, I mean, this should, the moral outrage should be the cynicism with which Hamas launched this attack, calculating on worldwide sympathy with Israel's response to it. 
And I think we have to have the judgment and the discernment to see through that cynicism and see how Hamas is exploiting the people it supposedly it is defending and in power to serve. Yeah. No, ter- terrorism exists exactly for the response that it creates, as you mentioned before in the case of 9-11. All right, well, let's conclude this very um, dire, though, I mean, fittingly dire um, conversation or statements we've had here with some, um, I guess, pointers for those of you at home who do not have the ear of the administration of any any governments. Um, what What can we do? insofar as we can do anything. So I I have a few ideas. The first thing is to just call a thing what it it is. Call good, good, and call evil, evil. Don't call evil good, and don't call good, evil. And that also means using real words for what's going on. And so I think Jew hatred should become the term of choice over anti-Semitism. It's much more visceral, and it's much more accurate. Yes, I agree. Next, I would say uh, this this is born of, of other um, experience that, I, that I've had and seen, but we need to challenge the bullies at whatever level we encounter them. Uh, there seems to be a kind of um, um, good person's abdication of responsibility because bullies or narcissists or people who desire power fight for it and work for it. And at some point, it's just kind of exhausting. It's sort of easier to let them have their way than to continue to block them. And you know, it seems to me that's how how bullies reach the highest levels of power. Um, good people, you also will have a tendency to second guess yourself because you actually have a self reflective soul, and you um, you know if if you want to oppose someone, you probably have some moral self doubt about your own motivation for doing so. I don't want you to get rid of that entirely, but seriously, folks. We need to stop the bullies, and we need to stop them at the lowest level possible. Um, at least, again, as the Palestinians deserve better than Hamas, bullies deserve the opportunity to be challenged in their bad behavior and have a chance of growing up and healing and becoming better people than they are. So let's all um, have our eyes open for the bullies and stop them. Yes. that's If you don't stand up to a bully, the bully will continue to bully. Yeah. Think of it as good to your neighbors farther down the chain of the bully's um, trajectory. Another thing is I referred earlier to our humanity problem, which is much bigger than our church decline problem. And again, uh, you can listen to many past episodes and as well as future ones that we'll have trying to sort this out. But just build up the human family that is directly around you, the, the people you actually see in the body on a regular basis in whatever way, whether that's playing board games or starting a business, going to church, sharing a meal, cleaning up the trash in your neighborhood, whatever it is, we need just to be more human together. And that is a way to bear witness to the God of life and to worship God and to turn aside the worship of death. And I would add to that, Sarah, that congregations should make a point of reaching out to the synagogues and mosques in their community. Uh, especially at this volatile time, to just share uh, what you're talking about, build up the human family, uh, make that an act of Christian love, just to reach out and be present to them in this very stressful time, especially for these two communities in the United States. 
Yes, Christians insist on being friends with both Jews and Muslims. It does not mean that you need to tolerate or condone hateful rhetoric on either side, should it happen. But be friends with both. Be the, be the place in between that can be a bridge. And last, uh, this is the most obvious um, and the, um, in one sense and the least obvious to do any good, which is how it always is, which is simply to pray. And I would conclude with the, <laughs> the prayer that has been praying in me from the end of Psalm 29. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Yes. Yes, and amen, Sarah. Thank you for this.